Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations about art and culture, you might want to check out the newest releases from David's Werner Books, where we've published award-winning titles on Diane Arbus, Yayoi Kusama, and Carrie James Marshall, in addition to Ekphrasis, the critically acclaimed series of texts on art. This season, look out for books from the likes of Catherine Bernhardt, Noah Davis, and Marcel Zama, as well as new additions to the beloved Ekphrasis series. Visit davidswernerbooks.com to learn more. Hi, I'm Marcel Zama, and I'm an artist. Hi, I'm David Byrne. Uh, I'm mostly a musician, sometimes an artist too. From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. I can work alone for at least four to five months, and then after that, I need to collaborate with someone like I make an excuse to to get together with friends to to do like a short film or or even just to draw together like i think i was aware that not everyone was like me in a way i just thought oh okay different different people are different and i didn't think of it as a disadvantage i'm lucas warner and every episode features a conversation we're taking artists writers philosophers designers and musicians and putting them in conversation with each other to explore what it means to make things today. This week's pairing, David Byrne and Marcel Zama. It's really special to have two of the most playful, creative minds I can think of together on this episode. David Byrne needs little introduction. The former lead singer of The Talking Heads is an artistic polymath, making stage plays, performances, films, and now even drawings during the pandemic. His Broadway hit, American Utopia, also became a streaming hit last year when Spike Lee turned it into a film for HBO. And he recently published an American Utopia book with illustrations by Myra Kalman. And most of you are familiar with Marcel, who's been showing with the gallery for many, many years. Like David, he has created work for the stage in addition to his art, most notably with the New York City Ballet, and he also just released an illustrated book, in addition of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, full of beautiful new drawings. I have some questions already. Well, the that uh, that robot creature in the background there, oh, yeah. <laughs> which also looks like it was from that uh, what is it, Oscar Schlemmer? Yes, yes, uh, as very influenced from. Uh... Oscar Schlemmer's, was it Trioptic at Ballet? I th they did like a recreation of one of his ballets in maybe the 60s or 70s. Um, yeah, yeah, I think was, I saw yeah. a little bit of a video of one of those. Yeah. It's a not a whole lot of plot. Or the, yeah, yeah, a... it's, it's more about yeah, colors and, uh, and a lack of movement. And... <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, or very stylized movement. So yeah. um, has... Have you had any experience like that? Has work you've been working in the theater a lot recently? Yeah. Does that uh, does that change when then when you go back to working in in two dimensions in the two dimensional world? Does that change yeah. <laughs> how you um, think of that? I I I think they um, yeah. Uh, well, when I started doing costumes, they were usually referencing. Uh, my own drawings or uh, like Oscar Schlemmer's uh, was highly influential uh, on the, this New York City uh, ballet, um, uh, the most incredible thing with uh, 
Bryce Tesner did the music and Justin Peck did the choreography and I did the sets and the costumes. And there was a King character that I, I just wanted to recreate Oscar Schlemmer as much as possible because I was just so blown <laughs> away by that. So I, had, I wanted to make it uh, original though. The King character had the least amount of dancing so I could go a little crazy with the costume. So <laughs> uh, I put the two, uh, two dancers together to make one character. And the head piece almost looks like uh, one of the Oscar Schlemmer characters, uh, but he separates and can dance around. As, oh, as so well. for, and part of the time, there's two, it's two people moving as one. Yeah. And then they can, but they can also split up. Yeah, exactly. Wow, that sounds pretty great. But but you know David I would ask you this the same thing almost in the reverse you you were going from performance into more flat work or at least during the pandemic I mean right before the pandemic you were really performing actively and you've been making uh, drawings I mean has the did the performance or your history performing have a sort of strong effect on what you ended up how you ended up pursuing uh, the the works on paper or sort of what are the cross pollinations there. I don't know that there was that a lot came from performance. I think a lot came from the pandemic that I wasn't aware of it at first, but then after I was had been doing all these little drawings, I'd look at them and I'd go, oh, there's stuff about bodies. And we're all thinking about our, our living in our bodies alone and being isolated. And here I am, my body is this thing that I can't go close to another person's body, all those kind of, so that, that kind of awareness and the awareness of, uh, of course, all the politics that were going on. And I didn't, I don't think I touched on any of that stuff directly, but I think when I look at it, I thought, yeah, it's all in there. It's not really a literal diary, but it really, all those things that we, we were churning through us during that period, I thought, I thought oh, they were all kind of, finding their way in there. Marcel, did you find yourself doing different things like during 2020? Yeah, I I kind of was using uh, it as like a therapy as I was kind of trying to travel uh, while being in quarantine. Yeah, mentally, mentally travel. Ment mentally travel. <laughs> so I had, <laughs> I had a lot of uh, photos that I had taken of just like family trips with my son and wife uh, to... Like uh, we were in Morocco and uh, to uh, in Mexico and and some and with my father in Hong Kong and all these places and I tried to incorporate all those uh, photographs into my world and so the backgrounds a lot of the time I was using these photographs of traveling to places that I missed <laughs> and mm -hmm. uh, it was kind of escapism and then on top of that I was also following politics like for really like nonstop. So I, I I also had to do these political drawings just to get that anger out of my system so I could do these kind of escapism drawings. So it was just kind of these two two worlds. There was this very political drawings and then these kind of yeah. Trump urination, <laughs> Trump urination drawings, Trump defecation yes. drawings, yes. kind of any, any kind of scatological <laughs> Trump drawing you can imagine came directly out of Marseille yeah. in between sort of yeah. like hallucinations about Morocco. You would get right. sort of like urine. It was this vomit of, of uh -huh. bile that just had to get out of my system. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can certainly imagine. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Did you find it as like a therapeutic 
thing as well, like just to kind of have this this outlet. It's therapeutic just to kind of put the lines down and like if, okay, now I have to do the shading on this side and that's going to, line by line, that's going to take a little while. And that's, that's very therapeutic to just have this sometime, part of it is just uh, this repetitive work that you have to do to get the thing to look halfway decent. And that that in itself is kind of therapeutic. And well, I also find that time kind of disappears and like it, it exists on this other level when you're working on, on at least for me, for visual art. That kind mm-hmm. of, um, so it, it doesn't feel like this long, <laughs> you know, a day inside your apartment or <laughs> whatever. Yes. <laughs> Yes, it's a little little task that you can do that I can't I couldn't do anything else. I couldn't go perform. I couldn't kind of work with other musicians or do any of that. Everything was stopped in that way. So this was it was great to be able to do that. I was going to ask about that. You know, I, watching the um watching the the filmed Spike Lee the filmed uh, American Utopia which we were talking about briefly before. I was, it's so expressive. And also the feedback from the people, the audience is so kind of amazing. Um, and I, I wish I had been there in person, but I, it's kind of unimaginable for someone. It seems like someone who has that, those gifts and that desire to connect with people to be isolated in this way. It just sounds like it would be extreme, like particularly difficult in a funny way, like a visual artist is primed for some degree of isolation. I mean, I feel like you would agree on some level, Marcel, it's, it's solitary work in the best of times, you know? Um, so I'm just curious what some of the feelings were like for you, David. Like, how, how did you there was navigate a, there that? There was a period last year, probably the spring and summer, where I would I would get together with uh, band members and, and sometimes other friends, and we'd go for long bike rides around New York. Like, we'd ride out to Jackson Heights, um, see what that area was like or we'd go to Astoria or I did one ride up into the Bronx and I didn't know the Bronx that well there's a lot of hills which is not a lot of fun on a bike but then you know you get to a park and there's these people kind of making music in the middle of the park it was some you know some of that was really nice uh so that kind of helped keep me sane um the although I yes it's the things I do, it's often collaborative, working a lot with other people. But then there's also periods when I'm kind of alone, working working on some of the composition of things, working things out on my own. So it's kind of a, sometimes one and sometimes the other. Um, Marcel, I don't know if you're – I know some of the your recent shows have involved a fair amount of fabrication and things. And I don't know if you do all that yourself, but I'm guessing that you sometimes have help. Yeah, yeah, definitely. When when I'm doing films, uh, I'll have uh, I have like a costume person I work with that makes like I I can't make uh, well I can, but they're not as good like the sewing of uh, fabric mm-hmm. and things like that. I could do paper mache stuff, so that that part I always enjoy. Um, so, um, and then I also made like some short films with my son as well. So we made like paper mache masks and things like that together. So I tried to include him in as much projects as possible, especially during the pandemic. That was my collaborator. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I find that usually I, I can work alone for at least, uh, like 
four to five months. And then after that, I need to collaborate with someone. Like I, I, I kind of, I make an excuse to, to get together with friends to, to do like a short film or, or, uh, or even just to draw together. Like uh, I did some collaborations with like Raymond Pettibon and mm-hmm. um, with uh, Joachim Nordstrom and a few other artists at the gallery and, and friends in Winnipeg as well. Marcel, I was curious to sort of ask the reverse question, which is that you came to performance and ballet through the drawing. You know, was there a kind of, um, you know, you, like, like a pivotal moment or some specific thing that happened that kind of triggered that transition uh, into that, frankly, very yeah. different medium than, uh, than the one yeah, you started um, out in? Yeah, when I first, well, I was living in Winnipeg till 2004. And then when I moved to New York, um, well, my drawings were very minimal before. There were like one or two characters kind of doing some surreal <laughs> kind of uh, situation. So Winnipeg, it, like in, in the winter, the, the landscape is just this kind of white because um, uh, it's a prairie uh, province. So uh, when it snows, the sky and the, the snow just kind of blend in together. And it's this blank canvas almost. I kind of realized this after I left. But um, that was my background for everything of, of my drawings back then. And then when I moved to New York, I slowly found all these characters, uh, this claustrophobic kind of uh, feel to the drawings. And I kind of wanted to put some sort of order to it. And so I put them in ballet positions. And I happened to be uh, staying in, I think it was Williamsburg, where um, they uh, people had like these stoop sales and someone was selling all these old ballet magazines from the 70s and 60s and I, I bought them all and I kind of was flipping through them to find ballet positions and actually Oscar Schlemmer was in one of the issues and that uh-huh. that might have been the first time I actually saw it was in one of those magazines I but I I didn't know who it was I just cut out the the picture and put it in uh-huh. one of my scrapbooks and then later on I figured out who he was but you guys share that. I mean, another thing I, I, I we talked about the drawings briefly and and the performance, but also in uh, in American Utopia, you of course bring up Schwitters, Hugo Ball. Like, there's a real interest, David, in in Dada, which of course I know that Marcel is also very interested in. Um, and I'm sort of curious about the respective wh- where those interest because yours seems to be quite uh, David. That is, yours seems to be quite like specific and longstanding. Um, and, and, and I was curious about that, your relationship to that movement. I, well, yeah, I stumbled on it probably either when I was in art school or shortly after that. And I kind of found it really attractive, the kind of the slightly disruptive, slightly punky attitude of the Dada artists and then, uh, their use of, that they would cross over from doing, kind of making visual art to poetry to music and noise and theatrical events and all that kind of stuff. And that all made sense to me that, that there, you should be able to transition from one to the other and all those kinds of things. And then later on, uh, I, I learned that, say, in Zurich, where a lot of that happened, it was a, it was a huge immigrant community. A lot of these artists were people who had moved there to get away from what was going on in the, in the respective country, countries that they had come from. But um, yes, but there was a lot of that kind of 
immigration and people, and in Zurich, a lot of them coming together physically for the first time. And I think that helped kind of energize that whole movement. It was kind of a, uh, there was a kind of unspoken political side to what they were doing. Mm, yeah. Mm. Like it was almost like born out of the disgust of like World War One, and, and then on top of that, the, the oppression that was happening is it, exactly what, what year is it was it like the th- it's the 30s right yeah yeah and before that even and i think they uh yes they express it in their attitude the they're not kind of doing work about specific political political figures but yeah it's very clear where, where their sympathies lie well you you quote that i think there's that beautiful I, I i don't have the exact line but i made a note of it the 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 hugo balls line that you quote in in utopia which is games that remind uh people that there's things beyond nationality right that there are different ways to live in the world different ideals exactly and um yeah and yeah. they all came from these repressive these places and they yes they could see that this nationalism that was exploding everywhere was very dangerous and they wanted to find a way to kind of liberate people from that. And it, it's it's funny because that, in a way, particularly Austrian avant-garde or German avant-garde move to make an imagined reality into a political gesture, right? Where, like you said, it's not at all literal. It's not about finding the political person and identifying and creating propaganda. It's almost like creating nonsense that militates against all forms of restrictive meaning. And it definitely feels like both of you have that in your practice. Does, is that, does that resonate, what, what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, for, for me, anyway. <laughs> um, like using almost like humor and nonsense to, to, to go against the, uh, the reality of the situation, which, which doesn't make sense usually. <laughs> like why, why we're in the situation we're in. A lot of the time, um, even the dominant ways of, of constructing meaning, you know, like at the most fundamental, you know, like the dominant ways of using language, dominant ways of of constructing an image, you know, and, and of course, pairing text with image, which you do also, Marcel, as a way of counteracting, I think, those received modes of, uh, of, of understanding, which, of course, end up hardening into the bad kind of propaganda and sloganism and all the rest that we hate. And so it, it just it felt like. Also watching you you perform, David, that, that made sense to me that there was an interest in that kind of resistance to received, almost received wisdom. Yeah, yeah. Like, you're, like, yeah. You're always trying to kind of break break free of it, um, not get trapped by it. Um, I remember early on realizing that no, I I have to find a way to move on stage that isn't like I'm not imitating uh, Mick Jagger, I'm not imitating David Bowie, I'm not imitating somebody else. I have to find my own way to move, um, which I think I did eventually. Eventually, but it 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 took time because you, the tendency is to to look at these other people and the, and think, oh, that's the way you're supposed to do that. And the same thing goes for whatever drawing or anything else. You look at it and go, oh, that's the way that's supposed to be done. But how can Marcel and I learn how to move the way you move? That's really (laughs) (laughs) because I've never been more jealous of the way someone moved than watching American Utopia. It was because your movements are very minimal. It's actually quite subtle. You don't do that much, right? It's not like, I mean, not all of it is 
hyper-expressive, but exactly. in the subtlety of the hands, in the movement of the waist. In, it's just like, I was blown away, man. I was like, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, a lot of it starts being improvised, and then you kind of, you know, like a lot of things, you go, oh, that, that kind of works. I'll, I'll keep that. And uh, yeah. So it's like a natural choreography? Like a lot of it. Of, I mean, I yeah. did work. There was a choreographer involved, a woman named Annie B. Parson, um, who... She, she uses kind of vernacular movement sometimes, incorporates that. Like she'll say, okay, uh, run your hand across the rim of your hat. And then now mm. shake your hands like you're, you're trying to get some water off and then do this and get a comb out of your back pocket. You should, there'll be things like that. So they, they pertain to kind of everyday things that you do. And then you put them together and it turns into a little dance. Yeah, no, it, it, it's, it's funny you say that because it does feel, the movement feels almost like action. And maybe that's what I was reacting to, that there's something, I don't know if you felt that way, Marcel, when you saw it, but it's like there's something, almost like something normal is happening, but in an extremely rhythmic and kind of like <laughs> fluid, it's like the best normal way of doing something. You know, it's like, here's someone like eating lunch in the best possible way that lunch could be eaten. Stylized everyday movement. <laughs> yeah, yes, very yeah, much. Totally, totally. Um, Marcel, how about you? You know, you said before you talked about the looking for the character who had the least motion in order to restrict them the most with the costume. So I'm curious how you think about movement when you are involved in these uh, costumed performances. Like is that, how much does it register with you? Oh yeah, I made uh, a Justin Peck when I was working on that uh, New York City ballet, give me a list of who uh, had the least amount of movement in the ballet. <laughs> and oh. so I could go I could go crazier on the costumes that were the, the, the ones that danced the least and the ones that had the most movement were basically kind of your everyday ballet costume like spandexy but usually i'd paint something on it or something just to to give it a a Dizama signature <laughs> did uh, did any did any of the dancers complain uh cuckoo bird <laughs> that comes out and dances uh because it's this large clock that comes to life and so this cuckoo bird comes out and dances and she had uh i think originally justin had written her as not dancing is hardcore as <laughs> originally uh, she does. And then um, slow, yeah, the, there was like a big hood that she had to wear with a beak on the top and um, these big heavy wings that were full of, uh, I can't remember what material we used, but we basically just cut it all down to, to like lace uh, feathers and mm -hmm. just like a little tiara with a feather in it just so she could move and have neck movement and stuff like that so mm. um i think we got to do uh, a commercial with with the original costume like oh uh, okay so, so it's on film the original one but we for the actual ballet we cut it down we, uh, cut it down or it. stripped it down <laughs> yeah. <How> minimalism style. <laughs> but actually speaking of minimalism how did you pick the costumes in your in your show, David, because that that I was just curious about the whole aesthetic, right? The the suits, the kind of gray, the the the, the very highly expressive um, dancing and moving and singing, and very kind of reduced palette. If that makes sense. Yes, like, yeah. It's it's not a very whatever pop music kind. No, of No, it's look. not a pop music palette. I, it's like. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I love that you had bare feet as well. Yeah, me that too. Was really great. That was great. Like close to earth kind yeah. of uh, feel. Exactly. Um, one thing came after another. I, 
I was trying to think. I wanted everybody to look the, to be dressed the same, uh, so that the attention would be to them as personalities or individuals or whatever they were doing, and rather than kind of, oh, this one's got an amazing whatever leather outfit or this one's got an amazing red dress. I want it to be more about what they're doing and who they are as opposed to what they're wearing. And so I thought, okay, we got to have them all be the same. What can we do that's going to that's going to be relatively elegant and uh and yet not draw too much attention to itself. So I just said, okay, it's going to be suits. We and at first I thought, oh, may, are the women going to have skirts under, with their suits and Whatever. No, we just made them all the same. Uh, just tailor, tailored them to the different uh, performers. And so after that, I just basically just asked the sound, the lighting director, and I said, "Okay, uh, what color is going to work best for you?" And he said, "Medium gray." Then I can, if I if I put light on them, I can you'll see them. And if I take light away, they can actually disappear into the background. So it gives me the most, uh, the biggest amount of flexibility. So I said, okay, gray suits, here we go again. Uh, I think I've done that before. And, um, <laughs> and yeah, so we just said, you know, if you wear a white suit, I can't make you disappear. Um, so that's what we did. And then I thought, oh, we're not going to have, uh, you know, business shoes or, God forbid, we're not going to have, like, running shoes with the suits. So I said, okay, let's try barefoot. Let's see if we can do that and see how our feet hold up. Um, there was some worry that if you're moving around, your feet might get blistered from sure, sure. sliding I, I on the stage. Or, uh, I mean, we, we had our own like this thin kind of rubberized uh, kind of Marley surface that mm -hmm. we put down on top of the stage. But there were places we played where we weren't allowed to put that down. And we ended up, you know, performing on plywood or something else. And you just go... Oh, please not. No, no nails, no splinters, please. Yeah. But, you know, it's also interesting, something that both of you do, I think, exceptionally well, or also with, with a great deal of, of joy and enthusiasm is collaborate, right? And that's not, not everyone likes to collaborate, but I've definitely, it's clear the way you're describing the feedback from the lighting person that the idea, David, of like an, of an open conversation, um, where something comes to life almost organically, uh, seems central to the process you're describing in some way. Yeah, some parts of it I'll, I'll be pretty firm in what I want. And there's other sure. parts where, yes, it's really just problem solving. And if somebody else has a, uh, a solution to that problem, that is totally fine. And uh, I've gotten really used and accustomed. I don't collaborate on every single thing, but a lot of things, yes, I, I collaborate. And, but I know, Marcel, that for a lot of artists there's not all artists are happy with collaboration. They, they are go like, no, I work, I have my vision and that's what I do. And I don't want anybody else mucking with it. I mean, I really enjoyed uh, collaboration because they can kind of just remove my ego away from it and then become that you're really open to every idea again, kind of like you're, you can, can kind of lose your style and just, you, you don't have to, yeah, you're, almost your past doesn't exist and you can just go in this direction. But also when I, when I work on like film and things that I, I don't know so much about, if there's like a, a lighting 
a guy will tell or woman will tell me, you know, I have this interesting, you know, uh, rotator that does this flash or whatever. I'll be like, Oh, let's include that, you know, Mm -hmm. make it like almost the centerpiece of of the film. That was just this thing that the lighting uh, guy designed for some other thing that never got used. And so I'm always open to, to new ideas, uh, especially with, with film, but also in, in drawing and collaborating. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, uh, yeah, when, when I was working with Raymond, I, uh, I even was trying to, we, we did a few, because we, we knew for sure that people were going to be like, oh, Marcel drew that, Raymond drew that, and we're going to try to figure out who did what. <laughs> and so we purposely did, he drew some kind of characters that I'm more well known for, and I did like his waves and stuff like this and he, he did like bats and stuff so so did you and we, like when you're doing the waves did you try and do the waves in in his style yeah in his style uh-huh. and it actually really opened opened up to because i was like if i made a mistake before like if i dripped ink on on the paper i was like oh how am i gonna clean this up and kind of figure out a way around it whereas when i worked with him he, he would just like leave it and it kind of you'd see the the how how it was done more and so I, I i let that into my work later on so it was kind of really nice to have to let go a little bit did you collaborate on text text stuff as uh well? yeah uh he i mean i he was more he's, he's much more of a poet than i am so i i i would put things here and there but i i mostly let him mm-hmm. uh, or i didn't let him like he he did most of the texts of of those drawings it's yeah it's, it's funny because it seems like the the talent for collaboration well you know if I, if one as a non-artist you know if you think about on the one hand you need a, kind of a very intense vision of what you want to produce i would imagine but you also need the ability to suspend that vision in order to improvise in the moment somehow and it feels like collaboration is exactly that dance between kind of letting those improvisational moments exist within a space that you have decided is right for them, if that makes sense, so that they're kind of within your vision, but free within that. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm working on a kind of immersive theater thing for next year, next summer. Um, seems like a long way oh, it'll off. It'll be here. It'll be here in two seconds, don't you? Yeah, yeah. So we just, we just, just had a kind of one, of one of these phone calls about feedback to the script. Mm. And and I said I think uh, everybody on the kind of creative team should should give their feedback, but it should be anonymous. So we're not we're not mm. uh, everybody can read what everybody says, but we don't know who said what. Um, the idea the idea is that so oh. you don't play play favorites, or you don't go that person said that because because they're a woman or whatever reason you might come up with in your head you're not going to know. Um, and I thought, oh, that's, that's a great a, idea. That's that kind of a blindfolded collaboration. Yeah, I never heard of that. That's so great. We'll see if it works. And it's very, it's actually, as you said, with visual artists, like true collaboration is is quite rare, actually, uh, David. You know, you were saying it's like, even if p- people want to, it's hard to, it's just hard to get it right. Like, I think it's hard to be open enough. Are you able to say more about the, the immersive uh, production? Uh uh no it's um the the concept is uh it's based on a lot of perceptual kind of science things and so 
it, it's a thing where an audience of 16 people goes through a series of seven rooms. Um, they're led through by a guide, and the guide is a person who they meet in the first room and whose life there is being told backwards. So that by the time they get to the last room, the guide is kind of, it's talk, they're kind of a, a child. And, it's, uh, and somehow the kind of perceptual insights are, we're trying to tie that into the life story turn, told backwards and all that kind of stuff. And the, uh, the audience members, so it's 16, group of 16 goes in the first room. When they clear the first room, few minutes later, another group can come in the first room. And so you've got this cascade of audience going through. And that way we get, after a few hours, you get to a pretty decent number that can actually pay for the thing where it can actually pay for itself. Is it a musical element or no? There's uh, music in one room. Um, there's, in one room, the guide will break into a song, but uh, mostly it's not musical. Yeah. You're also friendly with, I know that I, I, I met you or saw you once at a Doug Wheeler uh, exhibition, uh, David, right? I met him in Santa Fe, and he and some of his friends, Larry Bell and some other people, have done a lot of, obviously, perceptual stuff. So I could say, hey, do you know anybody who's done, do you know about this phenomena? And has anybody done anything with that phenomenon, whatever? And you go, oh, yeah, yeah, Larry Bell did this thing with where... You can't tell exactly where the room ends, or you can't tell this. And it was, uh, and of course, Doug's stuff is is like that too. But yeah, that's kind of on another level than what what we can do. But that stuff is so it's so um, obs obsessive in the best way. You know what I mean? Like every corner is is kind of rounded, and the light is so it, it's true. I would imagine it'd be very difficult to do that in seven different rooms. It's hard enough to do it in one room. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, I mean that would be it, it'd be <laughs> it would be wonderful to be able to yeah have that kind of rigor. But well, we're we're trying it in different ways, but not in that kind of poli super polished way. And 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 Marcel, I thought in in a similar spirit, what would you talk a little bit about your? Oh yeah, uh, you have something show coming up. Yeah, it's kind of. Um, I'm I still. I'm still a little bit because I'm being up here in uh, Southold. Um, I feel very close to nature, so it has a lot of the uh, of the last series. This nature kind of took over my drawings, and um, so I still have a lot of that as as a main feature in there. So, kind of playing around with uh, also the idea of mixing in a Midsummer Night's Dream with, with the whole series as well. Uh, so, so I just did a, a book of, uh, uh, il illustrating a book of um, that play. So, I've seen it. Yes, um, it's really nice. Yeah. Oh, thank it you. seems like, and, wow, what an obvious combination. Yeah, it seems like, yeah. What about, how was it for you, David, getting um, Myra Kalman, whose work I, I know, she's an amazing cartoonist, to work on your book? Was that, what was that collaboration like? a theater director who was helping me with my kind of monologues that I do as part of the show. Uh, he said, you know, David, uh, you might be able to request a, a drop curtain, an you know, some kind of drop curtain that's unique to this show. And I said, really? You think we can, they, they'll go for that? Um, so um, I'd known Myra for decades, um, she did a book that was 
basically illustrations of a Talking Heads song many, many years ago. And so I just called her up or wrote or sent her an email or whatever and just said, hey, there might be a possibility of doing this drop curtain. Do you think you could populate this uh, with kind of various people? And uh, so we talked about it. And yes, she came back with mm. these wonderful kind of drawings that are in her style of all these different people. And she came up with the idea of having these town names from all over the United States, real towns, but kind of a little bit, the town, the town names sound a little bit fantastic, yeah. but they're all, <laughs> they're all actually real. So it kind of takes oh, you, oh, that's sure. <laughs> yeah, it takes you on this kind of uh, sense of all sorts of places and people and whatever. And, and, as the director said, yeah, this is the show begins when they start seeing this curtain. Um, before the curtain goes up, they're actually getting a taste of what where you're going. Yeah, it was beautiful. I read a lot of those books to my son, so we were we were fans of her work already. So oh, it was really nice to get that book in there. He's a huge fan of, of all of your work as well. Oh, uh, great. So Thank you. Thank you. We've been making these short videos that uh, he writes the story down. And he, and he uh, he'll he'll be like, can can we do this? And I'll be like, yeah, of course we can. <laughs> so, um, but I, I I don't know how to edit on my camera yet. So all of our uh, our films together are uh, they have to be all one shot. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I went. We use this uh, mannequin a lot the, for for his other characters that he deals with. So he's the main actor. I'm I'm the cameraman, and uh, he interacts with whatever characters dressed up on the mannequin. Do you have a, a room or area there that's kind of like, oh, this is this is the the, the video studio? Uh, not not so much video. Every room's an art room, though. <laughs> it's, uh -huh. it's kind of a disaster. This whole house. It's. Uh, <laughs> art supplies everywhere so actually that's one of the reasons i have him there is hiding <laughs> my disaster of a room <laughs> were, were, were you uh david did you perform a lot as a young person like what were you like as a kid uh when, creatively in, in high uh by the time i was in high school yeah i think i was in a band and then i started do, playing at little folk clubs on my own um mm, mm. i was pretty bold about all that and but at the same time incredibly shy uh, off stage, and the, people think that's that's kind of hard to kind of get their head around. Yeah. But to me, it made perfect sense that I could be sort of extroverted on stage and kind of just spew out all kinds of any kind of craziness that came into my head, and then I could retreat into myself off stage and be and just be completely apart from people. Uh, but I thought, okay, but I've managed to communicate and kind of telegraph my existence in the few minutes that I was on stage. Uh, obviously, over the years and decades, I've changed. I'm a little more comfortable talking to people and, talk, and being around different people and kind of, it, attempting to hold up one side of a conversation. But it, <laughs> back then, it was really a lot of, yes, I like to watch. Yeah. <laughs> Was it like like you were almost to the point? You know who else was like that um, as a child was Raymond Pettibone. You know, I mean, he still is. There, there's a shyness there too that I also feel. If you look at how loud and and commanding the work can be, even the text, right? It's it's so, it's so verbal that it's always. Um, I mean, it's not surprising because of course 
artists come in every form, but but I always find that really interesting too. I, I, I think I was aware that not everyone was like me, um, but I, in a way, I just thought, oh, okay, different, different people are different, and it, I didn't think of it as a disadvantage. Um, I mean, that's just, in a certain way, that's just the way we are. We only know the way we are. We can't, it's hard to imagine being like someone else. Um, and as it's not a kind of physical defect or anything, you can't, it's, you can't say, oh, yeah, I have a problem. It's just, no, this is the way I am. It's less sort of woe is me. It's more I'm just going to sort of either recuse myself or just be differently in the room than you might expect. Yes, exactly. You will have to you will have to accept me as such. Marcel, um, if I'm correct, yeah, I seem to recall the uh, group of artists with the at the Art Lodge. Was that oh, yeah. right? In Winnipeg. Yeah, in and, Winnipeg. And how? What was that experience like? Was that was. Where there was a collaboration there and um... yeah a lot of uh collaboration so we um we all met in art school well uh, uh one of them was my uncle who's a year younger than me so my my mother had me when she was like 17 <laughs> so um and my grandma was maybe in her late 30s when she had my uncle so we were more like brothers or really close cousins and we went to art school together um and then my my parents were working full time. And so my little sister is 10 years younger than me. I would just bring her with me to these art lodge meetings that we <laughs> had, um, that these other artists that I met in university. So uh, we had decided to get together every Wednesday and make these collaborative drawings together. Um, and then we were also in a lot of bands together as well. We, mm -hmm. well, and made short films and any any sort of thing. It was it was we were all socially awkward too. I'm sure all of them are on some level of the spectrum. <laughs> were so there... we it was like our way of of having a social life because we were all very socially awkward. So we the way we communicate was with these drawings. Like we we even barely talked during those meetings and stuff. It was more we listened to music or a lot of comedy records and things like that. <laughs> what comedy would you listen to? Uh, well, I really like Steve Martin. That's a, <laughs> it was, um, but uh, it was, uh, I, I guess, because um, in Winnipeg, it was kind of a, a thrift store kind of culture there. So uh, records were really cheap at the time. So anything that was a comedy record from the 70s to the 80s was available, <laughs> like for, you know, 75 cents. So uh -huh. we just had, you know. Uh, wow. Uh, I can't remember all of them. Were there was there a local gallery where everyone showed, or was it a, were the shows at the art lodge? Or yeah, we had shows at the art lodge. We got a studio later after we graduated um, mm -hmm. university, um, and then there was also this great gallery, the Plugging Gallery, that was um, kind of uh, artist. It wasn't really artist run, but it was originally it was, and then uh, they they were really open to showing. Uh, our work once um, they 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 met us, so mm -hmm. <laughs> it was it was really great, and so it was well, a really nice community. That and um, yeah, that was that was kind of our excuse of having a social life was having these openings and um, just having 
people come and see we we'd have other artists show at the the studio it wasn't just our work or we do performances as well mm -hmm. did you have a similar th was there like a moment when the jam like jamming began for you david where like something just organically turned into something else sort of when did that because you said you in by high school you were playing then you were doing folk you know folk on your own and then i'm curious sort of like how the 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 bands materialized as it were or the collaborate or whatever you met in art school too right? yeah yeah i was, was kind friends. of curious about weird artwork as well too. yes it was friends from art school and um i think it was their idea let's i think i i, I played guitar and i think it was the drummer chris who said let's make a band let's make a band we mainly covered other other music and then eventually i started writing some some songs some songs just to see sort of just to see if i could i didn't think that this was going to be anything lucrative i thought there's people who are have training they know how to do this and i'm just <laughs> kind of trying to figure it out in a certain way that was maybe a similar kind of thing where it allowed allowed me a kind of social outlet being with the other musicians and then also doing these little performances and then, then I could retreat uh, and either write or kind of, I had ambitions to be a, a kind of an, an artist uh, that showed in galleries and things at that time, which didn't happen then, but it, um, that was my ambition. And I didn't, the music was kind of uh, something for fun that I did on the side, but eventually it kind of caught on. Did that work that you did in art school? Did that ever materialize into something after? No, not really. It, it didn't. Um, some of the sensibility stayed in. There was always uh, a, a little bit of element of humor. Um, and so um, there was a series of photographs that I'd faked of UFOs and things, things, things like that. Uh, those would be very, those would be very useful today I know. since oh my the photos seem to be, they seem to be real. I mean, you would be, you would be in the no, news yes. if we had those. I have the photos, <laughs> I have the photos and they're, they're Polaroids. So you can't, you can't fake you them. Can't you fake can't fake a Polaroid. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Marcel and David, thank you so much uh, for coming on. It was actually so fun to, to talk to you both. Thank you. Thank you for uh, keeping this moving along. Thank you, David. <laughs> thank you. Good to see you again. You. Yeah. It's been a long very time. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists on this series by going to davidswerner.com dialogues. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us again next time.